and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Now James 4, verse 14. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Okay, so in verse 13 he says, come now. This come now is like, hurry up, we have to, we have to deal with an issue here. What James is doing is he's writing to these dispersed believers who, who are uh, dispersed from that diaspora that occurred, as he's writing to them, he says there are issues. And one after another, he's dealing with issues. If ever in your life you think that you are beyond having to deal with issues, you're mistaken. Everybody has to be confronted with issues in their lives. And he isn't just singling out the young here, not at all. He's singling out people. He's singling out believing Jews that that were dispersed abroad, the twelve tribes, as he tells us in chapter 1. Constantly, it says, the scriptures say that, that reproof and discipline are a way of life. It is a way of life for the believer. And that's why if you feel, well, why should I go to church? Because I, I really don't like being told what to do. Then you have another problem. So you need even more to be told what to do, to deal with that problem. All of us have issues in our lives, and it is a continual thing of having to deal with this. It is never something that we are past. So he says, come now. You who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. So he says that, that there's a tendency to say that we're going to go, we are going to go to such and such a city. We're going to spend a year there so we know exactly how long we're going to be there. And we're going to engage in business and we will make a profit. There's some presumption there. There's nothing wrong with planning. It is a tremendous thing to plan. But we don't know what a day may bring forth. We really don't. The Scripture tells us that. We don't know, you know, if we're driving home today, if we're going to get in an accident and plans change dramatically. Life is like that. Life can, ha- can throw things at us that we can't expect. So what is supposed to be our response? He says, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes away. Look at the transient way that, that, that he talks about life. Life does come and life does go. This is why we need to set issues right. He says in verse 15, You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. So there was a violation of the Scriptures in in Proverbs 27, verse 1. This is what he's talking about. This is the violation of the Scriptures. It says in Proverbs 27, verse 1, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. You know, so it's really hard to boast about what we're going to accomplish tomorrow. We don't know what a day may bring forth. So this is a good reproof for us. He says, we should say... If the Lord wills, in verse 15, if the Lord wills, we're going to live and do such and such. If the Lord wills, we'll accomplish this. 
This is what he says. This, this wording, if the Lord wills, is never used in the Old Testament, but it's used in the New Testament a lot. Paul used it several times in the New Testament. Uh, this, this same sort of, 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 uh, of wording. So, we'll we just look at a couple of them. In Acts chapter 18, for example, Paul used it in verse 21. He says, But taking leave of them and saying, I will return to you again, if the Lord wills, he set sail from, uh, from Ephesus. So he says, I will return to you if the Lord wills. So there's nothing wrong with planning. He planned to return, but he realized God may have different plans for my life. You see what happens with our lives is this, is that we make these plans and then we, we have these little hissy fits if it doesn't happen according to exactly the way I want it. I wanted to do that. Does that ever happen to you? If the Lord wills, we will do such and such, and we will accomplish such and such. And this is actually a great relief in life. Because we don't know what circumstances are going to come. We don't know that there's going to be an economic meltdown in 2008 and 2009 that's going to change plans according to jobs. So that when people graduate, they expect to have all these people hiring them. Well, it doesn't always happen that way. So either we can get all upset about it, or we can say, yeah, we, we get a job if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills, it'll open up. And then it relieves us of having to carry this burden. If the Lord wills, I'm going to try to do this, but I don't know what the ultimate outcome is. And Paul did it, said it, the same thing again in 1 Corinthians 4.19, in 1 Corinthians 16.7, and then again in, even in Hebrews. It says the same sort of thing. If you look in Hebrews 6.3, it says the same sort of thing, the same pattern. So this, this type of wording is actually used a lot in the, in the New Testament. So even with, you'd think that if anybody really knew what was going to happen, it'd be Paul. I mean, this, the greatest apostle. You know, you'd think he'd have it all figured out, but he continually was saying, if the Lord wills. Now in Hebrews 6, verse 3, we don't really know who the author is. Some people think it's Paul, some people think it's Apollos. But whoever the author is, he says the same sort of thing in Hebrews 6, 3. He says, uh, um, and this we will do if God permits. So in other words, he's teaching them, he says, we'll accomplish this if God permits, if the Lord wills. This is a good thing. You see that this relieves us of this tremendous burden thinking we have to accomplish all these gazillion things. You know, if the Lord wills. And it's not a passive thing. He was trying to do there. It's okay to set our sights on going to a place and doing business. That's okay. But we have to recognize that there are things that might come in that might change that. That's really a real relief to know. A lot of times students want to know, well, what, I want to know what God has for me. I don't know what God has for you. All I know is you live faithfully for today. I don't know exactly what He has for you. And for good reason, He doesn't spell out everything. Many things are left in mystery. You know, we set our sights on a certain degree. Things may change. We don't know a whole lot about our futures. We may plan certain things. 
but ultimately it's going to be up to God. And here, James says, in James chapter 4, he says that we ought to even use this wording. You know, if the Lord wills, we'll be able to do that. He says in verse 16, But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. So to boast about all these great things that I'm going to accomplish, he says, is wrong. Because we don't really realize that. And that's where a lot of discontent comes. I had wanted to do this, and it didn't happen. Well, sorry. I mean, that happens all the time in life. There's lots of things. You know, people talk about making a list of things for the year that they want to accomplish. And that's not a bad thing. I've made lists lots of times. I'd like to do this, I'd like to accomplish that. And then when I look back at it, I'm like, whoa, I didn't accomplish many of those goals. But I had set these enormous goals. So, you know, apparently the Lord didn't will. You know, I I, I set these goals. There's nothing wrong with setting big goals like that. But ultimately, these things, the determination is going to be up to God. And I set really big goals, you know, not little things like, uh, I hope I can get to work five days a week or six days a week. No, I mean, I set these big targets that for chemists, it's a a big thing. It it wouldn't mean anything to you. But to me, it, it really means something. In my relationship with God, He understands what I'm writing about in my list. But it's okay to set these targets, but not to get so flustered. You know, I'm dealing with a with a graduate student who's all upset because he wants to he wants to publish a paper in the journal Science or Nature and be the first author. Now that's a good target to have. But the guy's just beginning graduate school and he thinks that, you know, the first project he's gonna get on it's gonna happen. And I gotta, you know, settle him down and say, Whoa, whoa. <laughs> calm down here. Jesus wants you to be faithful in the little things. And then you can be entrusted with much. You know, everybody that I know of who has won a Nobel Prize in their 20s or 30s, you know what it's done? It's messed up their lives. You say, well, they must have been really smart to win it. Usually what happens is they're teamed with some professor and in that research group, you know, the professor and they publish a paper and it turns out to be really glorious and they're 30 years old. Their professor who's... 70 years old wins the Nobel Prize and they were on the paper with the professor so they win the Nobel Prize too. That 30-year-old, their life is invariably messed up. You say, why? Because people have now all of these amazing expectations. Wow, he's 30, he's a Nobel Prize winner. Well, he's just a regular guy that happened to be smart but also in the right place at the right time and it messes up his research career. Because... You know, he hasn't really done anything great on his own other than this thing. And everybody has these enormous expectations. So God grants us little things, a little at a time that we can flow into. You know, it says of Israel, as they were coming into the land, they were to conquer the land of Israel. And God said, I will not give it to you all at once, lest the beasts of the field overcome you but I will give it to you a little bit at a time. And God does that. He gives things to us a little bit at at a time as we show faithfulness. That's why Jesus said, you've been faithful in a few things, now I will grant you much. You don't want the much. One day my my daughter was very young, she walked in my office and she saw people coming in saying, hey boss, what do I do this? And she looked at me, she says, I want to be called boss. 
<laughs> they looked at her and smiled and said, well, maybe one day. But you see, it's, it's for good reason that a six-year-old girl is, isn't called boss by everybody. You know, all of a sudden we want to have that, but we can't have that. God gives to us. So it's, it's okay to plan, it's okay to set your visions high, but to realize God gives us things in His own time and in His own way. And, and it is good to have targets. It really is good. You know the old saying that, that most people aim at nothing and they hit it every time. It's good to aim at things. It is good to have targets. But just to realize that if the Lord wills, I will accomplish this. Then he says in James chapter 4, verse 17, Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. It's interesting. Usually... Sin is doing a wrong thing. You know, there's something there that shouldn't be done, and I do it, and that's sin. But here, he raises the bar again. The New Testament does this over and over again. It raises the bar again. It says sin is not only doing the wrong thing. Sin is knowing what is right to do and not doing it. Do you see how that raises the bar now? So if I know that it's right to serve in church, but I don't do it, it says, to me, it is sin. If I know the right thing to do and I don't do it, it is sin. I mean, that's really strong words. You know, we have to, as, as we're, we're not apostles, we're not the apostles, we have to be really careful what we categorize as sin which is not specifically written in the Bible as sin. Everybody wants their little pet peeve to be called a sin. They really do. So, for example, the Bible never says that smoking cigarettes is sin. It is stupid, but it is not sin. It is not necessarily a sin. Now, people will say, well, it does say in Romans chapter 12, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, you shall not do anything to defile your body. Well, that's true, but we normally eat you know, muffins and cakes. And that's not the best thing for our body. So if we really want to say that anything that is not the best thing for our body is sin, then we're going to be in, in real trouble. So it'd be hard to imagine that that's what that verse could really mean. But there are things that are specifically written as sin. And the Bible talks about how some people think that eating meat is a sin. So don't eat meat. For that person, they shouldn't eat meat. And I remember saying this in the class once, and one guy sent me an email. He says, you hit it right on, that eating meat is not particularly a sin. However, eating meat that's from a big uh, uh, conglomerate of a, of a ranch is sin. Because it, the, the meat should be kept in, in, in more merciful conditions, and they should have more room. And I'm like, this is exactly what I was talking about. I mean, this was his little pet peeve. And he wanted it to be called sin. Do you see what I mean? But apostles are allowed to define for us in the epistles what is sin. Here he defines for us to know what is right and to not do it is also sin. This raises the bar on us. Maybe we didn't know. And all of a sudden, as we read the Bible and as we start to grow and we read and we see something, wow, I didn't know that. 
And then all of a sudden, it calls us to obey something new. This is why God doesn't take the Word of God and drop the whole thing on us. I mean, little by little, He reveals things to us. You take a brand new believer, they're so excited about the Lord. If you burden them with all the restrictions that you know about, I mean, you kill them. Just let them grow into these things as they read the Word of God and hear teachings that happen to address things. Let them grow in and, and little by little the Lord begins to work with them. Alright, let's look in, in uh, James chapter 5, verse 1 now. James chapter 5, we're moving into chapter 5, reading from verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have been moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you, and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. You have lived luxuriously in the earth and have led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. So in this book, James is generally dealing with the believing Jews. But in this portion, he is dealing with the rich Jews who were oppressing the believing Jews. So there were Pharisees and Sadducees who were the source of oppression for these Jews in the Diaspora. It was not Gentiles. It was Jews oppressing other Jews. It was wealthy Jews oppressing Jews who were not wealthy. He says, come now you rich. So again, he's he's calling them forward. He says, we have to deal with another issue. He says, come now you rich. Weep, howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. What he's speaking about is is about 20 years from this time period, there is going to be the destruction of Jerusalem. The 70 AD judgment is coming. Nobody knew exactly the date, but they knew that it was coming and it was approaching quickly. And that was not going to just affect the Jews in Jerusalem. Jews in Jerusalem were all going to be killed in the 70 AD judgment. In fact, the believing Jews, and historically it is known, those who were believers in Jesus Christ were going to fight right alongside their comrades there in Jerusalem. And there was a Roman siege that trapped them all in the city. But then the non-believing Jews said that there was a Messiah other than Jesus, and the believing Jews said, we can't fight alongside. Nothing in in this sort of name. And the siege lifted. Something had happened in Rome, the siege lifted for a short period of about a month or two. And during that lifting, the... the, um, The Messianic Jews had remembered the words that Jesus had said, when you see the armies surrounding, flee to the mountains. And and it was about 100,000 believing Jews, they fled across the river. And then the siege came back from the Romans that ultimately led to the death of everyone living in Jerusalem. But that affected greatly those who were outside Jerusalem as well because they lost substantially. Uh, 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 the backing that they had. And so he's warning them. Things are really going to change. He says, Your riches have rotted, and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted. And this this has got to be a figurative rusting, because, because God knows, because He did this, gold has no stable oxide at room temperature. It doesn't rust. 
this is just a chemical thing. But, so, so he's, he's saying that the value of this for you is all going to pass away. And he says, here is the reason why. In verse 4, Behold the pay of laborers who have mowed your fields, and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you, and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. This term, Lord of Sabbath, is used only here in the New Testament. This is the only time it's referred to. Now, Paul uses it once in the book of Romans as he's quoting Isaiah 1.9. But this term is used a lot in the Old Testament. Again, he is writing as a Jew to Jews, Jewish believers outside. He would not write like this if he was writing to, to Gentiles. But he says, here is the reason why you're going to be in trouble. Behold the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you. This was instructed not to ever be done. In Leviticus 19.13 it says, Never hold on to the pay of a man over the night. You pay him before the sun goes down. You pay him for his labors. Don't say, oh, go and come back tomorrow and I'll pay you. No, you pay him when his pay is due. It said the same thing in Deuteronomy 24 verse 14. It forbade the withholding of wages. In Jeremiah 22.13, it said judgment was coming upon the land of Israel because they had withheld wages from the laborers. In Malachi 3.5, it says that again, you've withheld the wages of the laborer because he needed that money to eat. Because unlike today, men worked that day to get the money for the food for that day. Even as recent as 200 years ago, they said that a man spent 70% of his day 70% of his day doing what he had to do do to acquire his food for that day. So that's, you know, before big farms came and and these sort of things. So people had to work and get their food for that day. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you. This is why you're going to lose everything. Let me tell you, you and I have to be very careful in business how we deal with people how we treat people to make sure that we pay them in a timely fashion, that we pay our bills, that we pay those whom we owe. Because it says, there's the pay of the laborers, which you've withheld, is crying out against you. That money, which is in your pocket, which you owe to somebody else, is crying out to God against you. That's frightening. You may have some little technicality where you, you didn't want to pay this person. He says, you pay them what they are due. Because of this, you're going to lose everything. He says, you better howl and mourn and weep for what's coming upon you, for cheating other people in business. So those who mowed your fields, you withheld their money, which cries out against you. And on top of that, there's the outcry of those who did the harvesting. So you ripped off those who mowed your field, and you're ripping off those who did your harvesting. And it says, the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. So in other words, the money in your pocket which you owe them is crying out to God, and their cries are reaching God. And God is going to deal with you. If we owe somebody money, we had better pay it. 
You know, my, my son went to the, to the mechanic shop the other day, and he got his car fixed, and my son said, can my dad pay you on his way home? And the guy said, sure, I know your dad, that's no problem. So, I call, so my son called me, pay him on your way home. How convenient, right? You know, my son gets his car fixed, and dad will pay on his way home from work. And, and uh, so I called my wife. I said, I'm not sure that I could get over to the mechanic's place before he closes. Could you get over there and pay him? She said, sure. So she went to him. He said, we had this lightning storm, and my computer went out. Just don't worry about it. Next time you come in to get your oil changed, pay me. And I told my wife, I said, I don't like this because we might forget. We owe this man some money. And so I asked her to go back the next day, and she did. And the guy said, look, Mrs. Tour, don't worry about it. I still haven't gotten the information back from the computer. Don't worry about it. Just come. And again, I left her a note just this morning because I'm leaving town later this afternoon. So I left her a note just this morning by her bed. I said, be sure to go back to John and pay him. I don't want this outstanding debt. I don't want money in my pocket crying out to God against me. It is a serious thing that we pay people to whom it is due. It is very serious. If we have something that doesn't belong to us, that thing, it says, cries out to God against us. You know, I had a wrench. There's a guy I lived with. His name was John Seal. I lived with him in college. And I lived with nine other Christian guys. So a lot of stuff moved between us. You know, I'd be walking and I'd see one guy wearing my sweater. It wasn't like I left my sweater downstairs on the couch. I mean, my sweater was in his, my, you know, the, the, the dresser drawer there. And, you know, he would go and get my sweater. It wasn't a big deal. I mean, we knew each other and, and, uh, and, and so he, he, he took my, my, my sweater and I'd see things. And anyway, so I had a guy's wrench. Well, when I left that house, that guy's wrench was in my tool case my toolbox. And I don't, I don't remember consciously saying, I'm going to take this guy's tool, but I made no effort to remove it or to do anything a year later, even when I still saw it there and I had moved to another state. Two, three years later, I used to still see that wrench there. You say, how did I know it was his wrench? Because he was one of these guys who had inscribed his name on this wrench. It's just a really cheap wrench. It was old, you know, it was wiggly, and it wasn't really great, but it was his. And so I tracked him down, I got his address, and I bought him a brand new wrench. And I put $10 in there. The worth of his wrench was about $10, but I wanted to leave nothing, because the Bible says if you've taken something, depending on the item... In the Old Testament, not that we're bound by this, but it gave us a good example. If you've taken something, you had to pay back fourfold to sevenfold, depending on what the item was. So I get, bought him a brand new wrench, and I put $10 in there, and I mailed it to him. Because I didn't want that wrench, you know, was just burning a hole in, in my conscience every time I opened my toolbox. Now I'm fine. That wrench is still there. But, you know, I've given him a much better wrench. I wish I had the one that I had bought him. But anyway, I had to deal with it. There are things like this in life. God wants us to be free of this burden. All of us have these sort of things. You know, some people don't want to pay taxes. Look in, look in uh, um, Romans chapter 13, and, and they justify this sort of thing. Well, you know, the government gets too much money anyway. Okay, maybe they do. Maybe they, they, they are charging too much taxes. Nevertheless, that's 
the law of the land. In, in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, Every person is to be sub, in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause for fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have the praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Governing authorities are ministers of God. You say, well, our government is corrupt. Let me tell you something. Our government may well be corrupt, but it's less corrupt than about every government in human history. You want to talk about corrupt governments, there would be lots of them. And lots of them today. So, in the levels of corruption, I mean, here, at this time, they are living under Roman rule, which had tons of corruption. And Paul didn't say, well, because the Roman government is corrupt, therefore you don't have to obey. He says, they are ministers of God. He says, therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, in verse 5, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. So, in other words, they can administer wrath from God to us. You know, put you in jail, fine you things, but also for conscience sake. Because when we violate, there's something in our conscience, and it puts a barrier between us and God. He says, for conscience sake, deal with it. Even if the government doesn't know about it, for conscience sake. Verse 6, for because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom taxes due. Custom to whom custom is due. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. If you are faithful, if I am faithful in paying my taxes, God will bless me. God will bless me. I have an accountant. She's here in the church. And... She does all my, you know, I pull everything together at the end of the year and I give it to her and she fills out all the forms because, you know, it just gets more complex. I I can't use that easy form anymore. So what I tell her is if there's any chance that you don't understand, just call me. And if I don't, I'm just going to err on the side of giving it to the government. I don't want anything. And she really appreciates that and it's easy for her. You know, I don't want to, you know, what I'm entitled to, I'll take. But what is theirs, it is theirs. And I will declare everything, everything that I get, I will declare it. You know, if it's, if, if it's some income, I will declare it. People say, well, you know, I don't have to pay income tax on that because, uh, you know, it's paid under the table. I'm like, you better pay income tax on it because the income tax form says all money acquired, both by legal or illegal means you have to pay tax on it. It says that. So whether, you know, if you're a waiter and, you know, no, no, nobody kept account of what was on the table there, you better pay tax on it. I'm teaching you this for your own good. If you don't pay tax on it, you know what's going to happen? You will lose out something else in life. People who try to hold on to stuff and think they're going to get better in life, it's a, not for believers, it doesn't work. Unbelievers, there's other issues to deal with. They're deep soul issues to get their salvation. But for the believer, God holds us accountable. 
that money will burn a hole in your pocket. It says in Malachi, when, when God felt people were ripping them off, He says, you're putting your money into a pocket with holes. And that's what's happening. Your, your teeth will fall out of your head when you're young. And it'll cost you a lot of money to keep them in there. Something will happen. The money cries out. This is what James says. That money that's in your pocket that belongs to somebody else is crying out against you. You pay tax to whom taxes do. You get money that's not recorded, you owe tax on it. And if you are convicted by this, for conscience sake, you must deal with it. You know what you can do? You can file and say, there's money that has been withheld and I'm filing it. And you pay some small penalty and you call the IRS and they will walk you through it. And, you know, you're 19 years old and they will understand and... You give them what they are due, and they might charge you a fine of $50. They'll generally say, don't even worry about the fine. We're glad you paid. Thank you. You deal with it for conscience sake. You say, well, you know, it's, it's only a few hundred bucks. It's not worth the trouble. How about your conscience? How much is that worth? I would gladly throw out a few thousand dollars. I would gladly throw out tens of thousands of dollars for a clear conscience. For conscience sake, you deal with it. We pay taxes to whom taxes do. It is easy to look at rich people and to say they ought to do this. God is calling us as believers. And so you see the instruction to rich is to make sure you pay who, who, who is owed. And the instruction, you know, it, it talks about how in the book of Acts, for rich people, that, that, that it, it's as people were selling everything they have. The instruction to rich, actually, in the epistles, where we have instruction, is to be generous. Is to be generous. You never want to take all the money from rich believers. You never want to say, rich believers, give all your money. You don't want, you want them to maintain this because they're good at making money so they can continue to give. In the book of Acts, people were selling everything they had, they gave it, and the entire church became impoverished in Jerusalem and they had to then end up getting donations after a few years from the outside churches. The instruction to rich people in the epistles is this. It's found in in, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6 is the instruction to the rich. And it is clear what rich people do should do. And remember, one of these days, many of you are going to be quite wealthy. You're going to do real well. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, here's the instruction. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. The instruction to the rich is, learn to be generous with what you have. Learn to be generous, and in doing this, you're going to build up this tremendous foundation, it says. A good foundation for the future. The best thing a rich person can do, a rich family can do, is learn how to give, and it is treasure for their children when their parents give. When the parents are generous, they're storing up treasures for their children. So parents think, well, you know, I want to hold this back. It's for my children's sake. You're ripping off your children's future. You learn how to be Give and be generous, and it's the best thing for your children. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of the Word of God, which calls us to something greater. Father, I thank you for these young people, and I pray, Father, that you would work 
in their lives so that they would learn to depend on you and to say, if the Lord wills, I will do such and such. And to be able to release their futures to a God who cares for them. Father, I pray for these young people that they would learn to be righteous with their money, to give to those that they owe, to pay their taxes, to do what is right. Father, that you would use them and bless them. And Lord, I pray, I pray that they would learn to work and to, to labor. And if they should become rich, Father, that they would be generous, learning that they can, through that, build a treasure of a foundation for their lives and for their families. Lord, I commit them to you. Do a great work in their lives, I pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen.